when I was a kid, I wanted to be an engineer when I grew up. I became an engineer, but now I'm a product manager. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Steph Brill. Steph helps build customer-focused products from concept to reality. Before she joined Shelf Engine, she was an engineer at Boeing Next, building the future of aerospace and mobility. Steph attended the University of Southern California, where she studied industrial and systems engineering. She chose to work at Shelf because she gets to geek out about two of her passions, combating food waste and emerging technologies. When Steph isn't at Shelf, you can probably find her on a flight that she impulse booked one day prior. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Steph. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Of course. Likewise, I always love to talk to product people, especially because it's such a cool intersection of the creative and kind of the more technical and practical. So I would love to start with your A to Z process of making products come to life. So whether you want to ground that in an example of something you've already worked on or just a general thought process that you have when you're approaching product, would love to start there. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to talk a little bit about kind of my mentality around product because I feel like it comes from kind of a a very unique place where I always kind of wanted to do the creative stuff, but I'm such an engineer and like technical person at heart where like, I'm like, I have to figure out how everything works and then, and then go from there. Right. So the biggest thing that I've really learned as a product manager is to never ideate in a vacuum. Um, I really like mm -hmm. that concept because like my job as a product manager is to own the product like responsibility. So I have to ensure that products add value to our customers, that they're fully thought out brainstormed uh, with a cross-functional team, prototyped, created, and released. So it's kind of like you are responsible for this product from like cradle to reality, right? So typically I like to bring in stakeholders as early as possible into the conversation. So I put in, an immense amount of focus on like user interviews, developing user roadmaps, journeys, something in the product world we call like user personas as well. Um, and that typically consists of like learning about pain points, really like trying to empathize with users and the people who are going to touch your product one day to make sure that we build the right thing that's actually going to add value to their lives or maybe like take away a pain from their lives. And so I'll often work with engineers and include them in those conversations as early as possible. My role at Shelf Engine is really like within the tech teams. We call it actually like the product team. So I have like data scientists and engineers on my team. And it's really cool that like we're actually part of the same team and we work really closely together. And for me, I think it's really helpful to have everyone have like a clear picture of who's going to be impacted by futures early on. So I think it, in some organizations, a lot of times like product managers will talk to the business people, really understand the bigger picture, and then share only bite-sized reasoning for why we're building certain things. But I think it's really important for engineers and the people actually building the products to like understand everything. Why is this so important? And like, why is this going to impact someone so much? And so... Like once I kind of have that initial phase of conversations, I'll like really synthesize what I'm hearing. I'll bring in data where appropriate. And in my company, like data really drives almost everything. And I'll think about like scaling. So especially at like a growth stage company like Shelf Engine, we're series B, we're really like, I would describe it as like a hyper growth stage because it's just like crazy all the time in the best way. 
you really need to be thinking about like what you can create that will either be a long lasting or B is going to help you get to the next growth stage. And so the longer term that you can think, the better the product, in my opinion. And it's really like my job as a PM to provide like the vision, the strategy around products um, and help our builder teams, meaning like the engineers, the data scientists um, and like the ops team, really, who are the users, understand how these changes, these features, these products, like from small to big are going to impact that bottom line. And we should think about like certain things like data structure, UX, UI, stuff like that, as it pertains to the building. And then I'll kind of end with the fact that I think iteration is super important. You're never gonna get it right the first time. And if you think you are, you're building it wrong. And so I really like love to build relationships with people both on the tech teams and the non-tech teams, because then I can actually create this really clear channel where we already built the trust and we can iterate together. And it's not like, hey, this idea was bad or, hey, this is the idea we're going with. It's like really a repetitive iterative process together to get to like the ideal product. I wanna to touch on something you just said about how you're in a hyper growth company where things are crazy all the time in a great way. And you're coming from a big corporation like Boeing, which I imagine there's also a lot going on there, but probably a more established sense of structure for a, for a corporation of that size. How have you found any lessons from being in that environment applicable to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. I And I think about that a lot in my day-to-day -day job because one of the reasons I made the switch to a startup is because I wanted something that was a little bit faster paced that had a little bit less, I guess, like rigor and like um, process in place. I really wanted to like contribute to the processes that we would build because I think having been at not only Boeing, but I've been at a bunch of other big companies as well through internships. I learned a lot about like processes that I like and that I think scale and that I think work really well and also like allow that room for creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. And then also processes that I think are just kind of archaic and don't really scale with where companies are going, right? And so I've had a really unique opportunity to take those processes that I've learned at Boeing, um, especially along the side of like building change management, like how to manage like a profit and loss statement, even on something that's like a really small product. And I think being able to bring that to a company that we're moving so quickly at, so you always have to make the trade-offs between like process and then like building something and incurring technical debt, knowing full well, you'll have to come back to it later. And it's really cool to be able to bring some of my learnings from those big corporations and build them as like smaller, more nimble processes for like my current problem at hand. It sounds like you have a really cool framework thought process when it comes to approaching product i was going to ask you what is your brainstorming process but do you feel like at this point you have a framework that requires you to think very little and it's more of like i need to see the data on this or do you actually find there are a lot of moments where you need to take a step back and brainstorm does that make sense yeah definitely makes sense it's it depends on the product i would say or the project that i'm working i think i actually spend a lot of time I spent a lot of time when I first started at the company really like listening before jumping in because that was really important to me coming into an organization where the business is really complex and there's like a lot of moving pieces. And the more I understand as a product manager, the more I can contribute. Right. And so whenever I'm taking on kind of a new endeavor, whether it's like a full fledged product or maybe it's an improvement or a small feature that's going to, you know, take five hours off of someone's plate, like those types of things, I think require a level of brainstorming that should take data into account and it does but you also have to think about like the human implications and i think a lot of that has to do with like really taking a step back and brainstorming and saying is this going to help someone for uh, a month is it going to help them for a year is it going to help 
the next person that they train on this. And so I would say it's like definitely a balance, but I do spend a lot more time doing kind of that brainstorming and then pulling in the data when and where needed. So once you get to a point where you feel ready to implement the things you've discussed with your team, how do you know when something is proving to be successful, it's not successful, or if it needs more time? Because you were just talking about iteration, and I'd love to kind of delve into that part of it. Yeah, definitely. I think the big key here is that you as a product manager have to help lead the definition of success before you take anything on, right? Because you're not going to be able to measure that unless you actually decide that upfront or unless you agree to that upfront. And like I say agree because you really have to get every stakeholder bought in before you, not necessarily before you build something, but bought in on what that's, what success looks like upfront. And so I think like building in the structure for user feedback has been really helpful for me in this, right? And that goes back to the iterative process that you mentioned. So not just after a product's been released, but the more that you involve them in that iterative process and the more you kind of ask for both formal feedback, like direct feedback, as well as like just consistent, continuous feedback, I think that's a better sense of knowing that like during the process, you're on track and you're building the right product. But then at the end, you're, you've built it in such a way that it will hit that success criteria, right? And so I think for me, it's really important to like, like I mentioned, define it up front and then revisit it along the way and make sure that that's still either you're still tracking that measurement or I think completely honestly, sometimes you have to get back together with stakeholders and say, I think we might be measuring the wrong thing. I think this turned into a bigger project or maybe there's like another implication that we also need to consider. Um, and I think that's totally fair to be flexible in that as well. It's so interesting you say that. It gives me deja vu because I just listened to this audio book, Adam Grant's new book called Think Again. And he's the best-selling author of originals and all these these great works. Yeah. And that was that was actually something I've heard him say very recently. So it's funny to hear you say that and the value of outlining what success looks like before you put something out into the world. So valuable and so powerful, which is to say, step aside, Adam Grant, Steph Brill, come <laughs> onto the stage. Um, that is <laughs> it's so it's so funny you say that because. Uh, when I, when I was transitioning from being an engineer to a product manager, I think a lot of what I did was like, oh shit, like I'm in a new role now. Like I need to figure out like the best way yeah. to do this. So you go to Dr. Google and you, you do some research and you talk to your friends who are product managers as well. And like, because this role is so dynamic across different, like depending yeah. on if you're at like a fame company or like a more traditional corporate organization or a startup, it's just so different. And like what you're going to be doing day to day. And like the what I would say like one of the five things that like really remained constant across yeah. that was like define success up front. And so now that mantra has been like completely ingrained into my mind <laughs> and it's proven so helpful in like every single project I've taken on here so far. Um, so Adam Grant's right too. Kudos to Adam. <laughs> Amazing. So diving into what success looks like and what you're doing now, that's eliminating food waste. So for people who might not be very familiar with Shelf Engine, could you briefly give us the overview on mm -hmm. how you're seeking to do that. Definitely. Yeah. So shelf engine is like a really unique value proposition. And I want to tell you like a little bit more about why just like, let me start with like the business, uh, like what our kind of our business model is. So like simply put shelf engine helps uh, grocery stores manage their inventory better to boost sales and reduce food waste. Um, and how we do it is really, really unique. So we're not your typical enterprise SaaS company what we refer to ourselves as an outcome as a service company, or you could kind of see it as like a SaaS 
ass company, right? Like, so, so we create the software that it uses like machine learning algorithms, AI, um, a lot of like really intelligent forecasting, but we actually don't hand off our product to anyone. So we use like these deep learning technologies to forecast demand on perishable products, like deli sandwiches, bag salads, cut fruits, stuff like that. Um, and unlike other demand planning solutions here, we automate the entire process. So we pay the vendor for all the products they deliver, but we only charge the retailer what it sells. And so that's kind of this guaranteed sale model that we have where not only are we guaranteeing profits for our customers, um, we're better predicting the food that the vendor is gonna have to create, right? So they're not creating too much food knowing they're gonna waste food. We can help the retailer better estimate how much to put out on their shelves. And in doing so, they reduce foods as well. Um, and so you require pretty much like no upfront costs. There's not software hardware implementation. Like I meant, like we do everything internally. And what's like really great about that, like I mentioned, is like we help grocers sell more product. Because our ordering technology and our AI minimizes stockouts on products, um, minimizes weights. And so it's like a really, it's really like a win-win for everybody, right? And so does that, does that mostly answer your question? Yeah, I want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly because what, from what you're saying, what I hear is, for example, let's say there's Whole Foods, which is the mm -hmm. retailer. There's Shelf Engine, and then there's the vendor who, let's say, is supplying tomatoes. So rather than Whole Foods buying tomatoes directly from the vendor, Shelf Engine goes to the vendor and says, we know exactly how many tomatoes to get so that it's perfectly stocked. And we'll, we'll pay for it out of our own money, and then we'll go to Whole Foods. And the way that Shelf Engine makes their profit is they'll take a little markup over the price they got it from the vendor. So if they got tomatoes for a dollar, they might sell it, let's say for like 120. Mm -hmm. And so they'll take that profit. But for Whole Foods, the benefit is that we don't, we didn't have to take any risk. We're only paying for what gets sold. And we know for a fact, based off the data, this much is going to get sold. And if you're the vendor, you're not making, you're not spending extra time and effort for no reason. You're making the exact amount of tomatoes that you know will get sold. So it's, it's a win, win, win in that regard. Am I understanding it correctly? Yes. Yeah. You're understanding it perfectly. I think what's like particularly interesting about this is that we like in using in getting the data from the vendors and from the retailers, like you're, you're absolutely right. Like we know, or we have a very good prediction based on data of how much they're going to sell. Right. And so they're guaranteed to make a profit. The vendor's going to get paid, right? And Shelf Engine says, hey, we think we're so good at this. And we think that like, we are gonna give you, like we are gonna sell the right amount that we will incur the cost if we're wrong, right? And part of that markup, I just wanna point out is not actually hitting the customer. Um, and it's not hitting the end consumer either, right? So in reality, when we look at the data of our customers, we see that they have very, very high waste, right? So they're already losing tens of percentages of profits to waste right and so i heard the ceo i heard the ceo say that one third of the food at most grocery stores goes to waste that's correct yeah and so and then a lot of products they only make about one to three percent margin on the individual product mm. right and so there's really this like what 30 percent gap that even if we do mark up the price they're still making more money by working with shelf engine so the actual product is it the AI? Is it the is it the ability to predict, or is there a physical element? Is there a hardware element? Um, just as as a layperson, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's all software based right now. We have our engineering team builds a 
a web application and a mobile application. The mobile application is used by our team that we call shelf champions. And they go into stores and they do a lot of things like inventorying, taking photos of the shelves, providing us insights from customers on satisfaction and and like, what can we be doing better? Oh, maybe this item stocks out a lot and like our uh, forecaster is not picking it up, right? And so mm-hmm. we have that, that mobile app aspect of it. That web app is really like, I think what carries a lot of the product that we build. Um, I mentioned that our business model is like outcome as a service, right? And so that is fueled by these machine learning algorithms and the models that our data science team builds. And the engineers build the tools that our non-technical teams can utilize to like, so, so they'll, they'll utilize our web app. They'll work with our, like what we call our forecaster, um, which is what the models and the, and the AI and the machine learning actually power. Um, and then they'll use that to actually build the orders. So we do forecasting and ordering for our customers and as well as a variety of other things, but all of that is really handled in house. And so, yeah, so to your point, it, it is still a software service um but we don't actually hand that off to anyone yeah got it okay so for example going back to this whole whole foods example whole foods let's say is working with shelf engine and says all right we're gonna have you handle all of our tomato inventory and you say great they can whenever they want look at their ipad and say okay we have this many tomatoes coming in this month and you know that that's uh that's that's how they know what inventory they have coming in and out and they don't have to deal with it. They just know they have the right amount of tomatoes coming in every month. Yep, and then they can give us the feedback through our shelf champion base or through the relationships that we built with them to say, hey, I think the forecaster is predict- or not predicting enough. So a good example of this is we have a couple of stores that we work with in Wisconsin um, and a lot, of, a, a lot of grocery habits are fueled by very much external factors, weather, major events, COVID, huge factor. Um, in right. Wisconsin, it's, it's Packers games, right? So, oh, interesting. So okay. grocery stores want to see more chips and guac. They want to see more uh, fruit platters, right? Rather than just like cut fruit or bulk produce, because that's what people are buying. And so unless we really invest in that data science aspect of it and like building in, in some of these exogenous factors, um, we won't pick up on that, right? And so um, to your point about Whole Foods being like, hey, I know I'm going to get this. Like, yeah, we know we're going to get this. But part of building that mobile app is to get that feedback as well so we can make our forecaster better and better. That's so fascinating. So, for example, in the case of those Wisconsin stores, your algorithm will then account for the Packer schedule and yep. budget accordingly. Yep. Or another fascinating another fascinating one I saw is that if a snowstorm is going to happen in the Midwest, where I'm from, I'm going to stock up on food before it happens because I know it's happening and I've been through hundreds of hundred snowstorms and I know exactly what to expect. But if an ice storm wipes out the entire power grid in Texas, nobody thinks that's going to happen. So no, so there were no increased shopping habits beforehand. There were no increased shopping habits during because people can get around and then there was a ton of wasted product, right? And so there's things like that where there's like these natural disasters or major events that are also regional that we need to think about because consumer habits in different areas of the country and different areas of the world are so drastically different, even if they're for the same retailer that we work with. Does that mean you're now thinking of factors like, for example, the Texas example, you do now have to account for the fact that, hey, this part of the country is on their own power grid and we can't we can't we can't show the same kind of budgeting we do for places that are used to handling storms so the next time a crazy storm storm comes to texas 
unless they've made significant changes to their power grid, we're going to have to, you know, account for the fact that things might go haywire. Is that kind of the new calculus? Yeah, I mean, not I wouldn't say it's exactly that, but you're like you're absolutely thinking in the right way, right? So it's making sure that we take into account all of the things that could impact the forecast. And that is going to change over time because people change over time, right? And the world changes over time. And so being able to build models that are super robust, able to take in new information, um, we can build features for our tech teammates to, or our non-tech teammates to be able to work with to handle these like really random scenarios. That's definitely something we're thinking about. So at this point, is it completely working with the retailer and the vendor or is there a component of engaging consumers directly? So currently our really big focus area is in reducing food waste in grocery stores, right? And so we work directly with the retailer, but I think that being kind of at the center of that supply chain, so it goes like, you know, farmer, distributor, vendor, or I should say vendor, distributor, grocery store, consumer, we kind of sit in the middle. So we, we pick up habits on both sides, right? So we learn if crops get frozen because then our vendors aren't able to supply certain things to the grocery stores. We know if there's a packer event on the other side, we know that like that's going to impact consumer habits, right? And so I think in particular, grocery stores are interesting because a lot of the food waste happens there, but there's definitely food waste at many points in the supply chain. Um, I think grocery stores make the most sense to be at right now, though. Yeah. I'm wondering how this could expand eventually to restaurants, because that seems like the next frontier of food waste is how to take that down to restaurants. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, like, what's interesting, like, particularly being at this company now is, like, we're just in such a different world than we were even a year ago, right? Especially when it comes to restaurants. And so... I'm interested to see kind of what happens as restaurants begin to open across the country, as people are getting vaccinated, as like new rules are created and other rules are lifted and how that impacts grocery stores and like, or not grocery stores, but restaurants and restaurant buying habits. Cause I'm sure it's like, even that's going to be different than it was a year ago. Yeah. And I mean, to this whole pre COVID versus post COVID idea, has that affected your approach at all in terms of, your creative process or have you found the approach you were taking toward product before and now is generally the same? I mean, you're accounting for new factors, but is, has the framework evolved in any way? Yeah. I, so I can't talk about it specifically to shelf engine cause I didn't join until about nine months ago, which was, you know, deep into the pandemic. Yeah. But I would say that it's, it's definitely like as things have opened and closed as we've kind of seen over the past couple of months, um, it's been really interesting to me to understand how grocery stores react, especially as well as like vendors and and just, you know, access to their facilities. And like in some states, like in, in Seattle, at one point, grocery stores were at 25 percent capacity. And how does that affect our like our forecasting and how our forecasting is impacted is impacted by the products that we build. Right. And so I think data science is really good at taking in some of those external factors. I think for me on the product side, like having started in COVID, I've always kind of had that mentality of like, okay, well, how is this going to change post COVID? Or are there, are we going to need to either like hire more people to handle X, Y, or Z, or um, are we going to need to think about our products in a different way? I don't know yet for post COVID, um, but it's definitely something that I, I think about constantly. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on for the post-COVID edition. Call me up. This, is, this has been super insightful. I've, I've learned a lot. Like just even the idea that Packers games are something that grocery stores have to really think about 
when it comes to chips and guac. Like that is <laughs> that is both funny, but also very insightful in a cool way. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. So on that note, we'll wind down with a few little rapid fire questions. Firstly, what's an app that you can't live without? And let's say not something that came with your phone, like messages or camera. That's fair. Yeah, because I, I would have gone with FaceTime on that example. But uh, yeah. I would say pre-COVID Hopper, like the best. Okay, yes. Yeah, the best flight booking app. I think their UI is so sexy. I think they do such a good job of like really diversifying the, the flights I can go on, the mixes of airlines I can go on. And like, I'm a big traveler. Like, as you said in my bio, I would get on a flight tomorrow if I could to, I don't know, someplace I've never been. So for me, Hopper pre-COVID. During COVID, Libby, which is like a library book app. And it is, oh, cool. you can connect as many library cards as you want. I think there's probably a max, but I have two. And I can get books at any time and it goes straight to my Kindle. And it's just like so easy to use. And if there's no book at one library, I can get a book from a different library. It's fantastic. That's cool. I haven't heard of that. That's awesome. I'll have to check out Libby. And um, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Gal Gadot. She's so cool. And yeah. Wonder Woman's like one of my favorite movies ever. Awesome. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? I'm biased because I worked at Boeing, but I want to fly just on my own. Like that would be <laughs> Should have so predicted cool. That. I know. I know. It's such a cop-out answer, but I feel like I have some background. I have some skin in the game. <laughs> and where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit one day? I really want to go to Peru. Uh, I was, I had a trip planned to Machu Picchu and then COVID hit. So that is like the first place I want to go to when I can fly again. And lastly, we like to ask our guests for a song recommendation. We have a playlist now of all our guest song recommendations, which is really cool. So if there's one song you'd like to contribute to the HDYD Jam Spotify playlist, what would it be? Oh God. Okay. I think my go-to song in any situation is Jubal by Klingandi. Okay. We'll add that. I'll write that down. Okay. Yeah, please do. But it is fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. And where can people check out your work and keep up with you on social media? Yeah. So you can check out Shelf Engine by going to shelfengine.com. We're actually going through a website revamp soon. So there's going to be tons more information, um, lots of video testimonials, just like a lot of really cool info about food waste. Um, so go there. And then if you want to follow me, it's at BrillDog on every social media platform you can think of, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. Spotify. It's there. Awesome. And if you're curious about the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at HDYD pod. Steph, thank you so much. This was super cool. Product people are always fun, but you especially, it's always good to see you. So thank you. It's great to see you as well. Thank you. I hope you found value in today's conversation. If you still haven't left your review for how do you do a podcast, I'm going to walk you through the process right now. And it only takes 10 seconds. First, look at your phone screen and click where it says, how do you do podcast, which is in purple. And if you're not seeing this, then you're probably listening to this on a different app. So I want you to click on where it says, listen on Apple podcasts, and then you'll see the purple link. Click that. Then you'll just scroll past all the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews. And all you need to do is tap the star on the far right and you've left a five-star rating. I thank you in advance for taking the 10 seconds to do that. And I really, truly appreciate you listening to this episode. Thanks for sharing it with your friends and followers. And I'll see you back here next week.